0: The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. All right, so tonight I want to talk a little bit about my own uh, personal journey and how it led me to the East forest tradition. My journey, in many ways, began when I was four years old. I was riding in the back seat of my parents' car. And I'm not sure what my parents were talking about. or But I had this uh, realization... that I was going to die and that everyone was going to die and that it could happen at any moment and I brought this up to my mother and father and they said to me very lovingly oh don't worry Bobby it's not going to happen for a long 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 time and I knew that they were actually trying to uh, protect me and it came from a loving place but I also knew that they weren't telling me the truth because what I knew was what I knew and that was that death could come at any moment and that was a very big awakening for me in that moment when I realized that this was not going to last forever and I'm fairly blessed that I'm just about 55 and a long, 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 long time is, is catching up and of course when I go to cemeteries, which I often do to meditate, I often see many people's uh, birth and death death dates uh, a number of people of course that were born after the year 1953 that are in the cemetery. Growing up outside of Boston in the late 50s, early 60s, was very exciting times and also very confusing times for me. And I was a pretty lost uh, person. I also uh, forgot to mention that after this realization of my own death and the possibility of anyone else, was that it was further re-emphasized to me in that by the age of 10 in the next few years, I lost my brother who lived uh, in the same room with me. He died of an illness. And my best friend who lived across the street. And my grandfather who lived downstairs from me. So these were very powerful experiences to have by the time I was 10 and I was really wrapped up in a place of a lot of confusion and trying to figure out what is this life. And this, of course, compounded by the Vietnam War and the Beatles growing their hair long. The times were a-changing. And I was pretty lost and confused in this spin. I looked to try to figure out Things through my own religion that I was brought up with, but didn't um, find a lot of answers. Actually, uh, some of my teachers were actually suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, which I was not aware of at the time, uh, of being concentration camp survivors that had vastly their own deep problems and things to deal with. At that time, I was looking a lot outside of myself to find answers and not finding very many. I'm reminded of uh, the words of St. Augustine that wrote, he wrote this in the year 399. 399 is a long time ago. It says People travel to wonder at the height of the mountains and at the huge waves of the seas. People wonder at the long courses of the rivers and at the vast complex of the oceans, the compass of the ocean. People wonder at the circular motion of the stars and then they walk right past themselves without ever wondering. Walking right past themselves without ever wondering. Well, In some ways, in my states of deep confusion, I was very deeply looking outside of myself to find some answers. And it wasn't until I was um, in undergraduate school in northern Vermont after flunking out and being remitted back in warning my junior year, for whatever reason and why, I have no idea other than um, I was drawn to take this class called Buddhism, Taoism, Hinduism and Zen. And we started off with the Tao Te Ching by Lao Tzu and the Binner translation. And Tao Te Ching, many of you are probably familiar with it, is 81 short epigrams of words of wisdom as Lao Tzu was leaving civilization. And the gatekeeper at the edge of civilization begged him to please leave something to humanity. So he wrote down these 81, 82 epigrams in epigram number 47, it says, there's no need to run outside for better seeing, and not to peer from a window. Rather, abide at the center of your being. For the more you leave it, the less you learn. Search your heart and see if he is wise and who takes each turn, the way to do is to be. Upon reading this epigram, I had another moment of deep awakening, resonance, excitement, realizing that I had been looking outside of myself to try to figure out what life is about. What is this life? And this epigram was pointing, there's no need to look outside your window for everything you need to know is inside you. And this epigram really turned me around, turned my consciousness around to begin to begin a deep travel of looking inwards. I'm reminded of uh, this looking inwards in a very uh, humorous way with Hafiz, who's a wonderful Persian poet. He calls this um, three days. He says, not many teachers in this world can give you as much enlightenment in one year as sitting all alone for three days in your closet. <laughs> yep, that would do. And that means not leaving. And you better get a friend to help you with a few sandwiches in a chamber pot. No reading or writing in there either. That would be cheating. Let's aim for the high 360 degree detox. This sitting alone, though, is not recommended if you are normally sedated or who have been under a doctor's surveillance because of your brain. So, dear one, don't let Hafiz fool you. There is a ruby buried here. Don't let Hafiz fool you. There is a ruby buried here. This epigram gave me a very brief glimpse of a ruby that is buried here, that the direction that I needed to travel in was the direction inwards. These are very exciting times. All of a sudden, I became aware of "Be here now. Probably many of you remember that book, Ram and. Some friends were going off to Barry, Massachusetts, doing this Vipassana meditation. What was that? I was wondering. This was in the middle late '70s. As time evolved, I landed in San Francisco and enrolled in the Calfe Institute. Of Asian Studies, which is now the California Institute of Integral Studies. And I had been practicing meditation in the East Coast and now was landing into the West Coast. And there I, a friend of mine introduced me, uh, recommended to me to take a Vipassana meditation retreat. And first one I went on was about Seven to nine days I actually don't fully remember right now but it was a longer retreat but one thing that I do remember from that retreat was that it was in this retreat that I landed into the teachings of the Buddha in a very deep way and I actually like to joke around and say that it actually this retreat caused me permanent neurological brain damage and I've never been the same ever since and I'm very grateful for that. This retreat of Vipassana was like coming home. It was like coming home after such a long journey and I knew for myself that I had arrived at the path. And it was a joyous birth of arriving at the path that I that I knew that would uh, I would travel for the rest of my life. And it's been true. And as, as happy as I was in finally landing and discovering the path that I wanted to tread upon after so many years of, of searching, I also realized with great humility that um, it was going to be a long road, this traveling of the path of the Dharma. I was very excited about this practice of the Dharma. One of the most uh, memorable experiences in that first retreat was some comments, of some teachings that my teacher, who was uh, Dr. Rina Sarkar was my first Vipassana teacher. Some of you may know of her, that she was talking about like how to work with, oh, feelings like anger arising, greed arising, hatred arising ignorance arising and so forth and she kept on just repeating acknowledgement is knowledge to acknowledge what arises within you is gaining knowledge and this type of a teaching was very new to me this idea of acknowledging what was within me because I think prior to that I had spent most of my life wanting to turn away from what was within me or to try to analyze or figure out what was within me but to actually let myself feel and acknowledge what's present That was very foreign to me. And yet, as I began to delve into acknowledging what was present within me, I began to notice that I was less burdened, that that was a powerful pathway, was by beginning to acknowledge what was within me. In regards to my um, greed, hatred, ignorance, for lack of better words, I got deeply connected to this practice and one day Rina asked me if I would like to go with her with some of her other students to Southeast Asia, to Burma and to meet her teacher and to ordain as a Buddhist monk and I was, you bet, I wanted to do that definitely and so on November 9th in 1980 traveled to uh, Southeast Asia and um, went to Burma and met with uh, Rina's teacher who's a venerable Tungpulu Seto And Tungpulu Seto was a forest monk who lived in Upper Burma. He was a contemporary of Mahasi Seto Some some of us here may not know about Tungpulu Seto but may know of, Tung, of Mahasi sero and of course Mahasi student Upandita sero that some of you perhaps have practiced with the Tampulu sero was a forest monk Mahasi sero was a city monk but they actually in some ways taught uh, fairly similarly in the sense that both of them had the same teacher who was Mingam Jetawa sero except so the Tampulu sero was a forest monk and this being Rina's teacher, and plus just my own past of having lived in northern Vermont for a number of years and really connecting to the forest. I was just delighted as anything to be in a Burmese forest tradition. And so it came to pass that I ordained as a Buddhist monk in a very rural area of Burma and began to live the life of a forest monk. I consider those days and times to be um, a period of time, to be a very precious time in my life. Now that I'm married and have two children, wow, that was a real spacious time for practice. Though, of course, it's still time to practice with children and a wife too, except it's a different practice, the householder's practice. Householder monk still got its challenges. But I loved the life of a forest monk, and particularly some of the practices and of late, I've been very interested in how can we bring some of these monastic practices into our householder life. This has become a little bit of a koan for me. Of How do we bring in... We may not be able to bring in all of the practices, of course, of monastic Buddhism, but there are so many rich and beautiful practices there that could be implemented as part of of our lives. I'd like to talk a little bit about... um, the four requisites that uh, a monk lives with and then also the 13 ascetic practices that some of us might feel to, to be kind of really amazing. So a Buddhist monk when you become a monk you are essentially being asked to live in four ways, that you are willing to live anywhere, whether it's under a tree or in the open air, or if a lodging is offered to you. It's the first requisite. The second requisite is that a monk gathers discarded cloth and sews them together to make a robe. If a robe is not offered to them, so monks are dependent upon Either discarded cloth or whatever robes are offered to them, or staying under a tree unless a house or a space is offered to them. A monk is offered food. They cannot necessarily go to their own refrigerator or buy food. That's whatever is offered in their alms bowl. And lastly, that a monk is dependent, is A requisite for a monk is that um, for medicine, that they have to receive medicine from householders. So these four requisites are very important in order for a monk, a nun to live by, that they're dependent upon the lay community for clothing, for shelter, for food, and for medicine. And when you think about it, most of us that are householders, including myself, we we have to get quite busy and do quite a lot to get our food, to get our shelter, to get our medicine, to get our clothes. That's why we have to work nine to five. But for the monk's life and nun's life, that's freed up. And they learn to live with little. Learn to be content with whatever's offered. so it may be very difficult for us to, um, as householders to give up um, these requisites because we need to work and we doubt that anyone's going to be giving us food and shelter and medicine and clothing. But the spirit is behind how we can learn to live with little, to be content with what is offered to us. I find this to be very helpful when we go into retreat practice because I know, and even including myself, we, I covet, I hope I get a private room. Sometimes it doesn't happen. But the teachers—they get a little bit of a gig going here. They usually get a private room. I noticed that now. But we have to let go of uh, of our of our wants. Wanting is uh, a big thing in our lives. And yeah, there's a beautiful poem here from Hafiz. No, 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 from Kabir. He says, I went searching for a shop where the merchant would say, There's nothing here of value, and I found it and I stayed here. These poems arise out of the richness of not wanting. I went searching for a shop where the merchant would say, There's nothing of value here, and I stayed. I liked it there. (laughs) Not so easy to give up our wants, though. Not so easy whatsoever. But how to learn to be content with what's here is, um, is a wonderful practice to, to work with. In order for um, monks to work with their wanting minds, they, there's actually a rich tradition that's often practiced in the forest tradition of the 13 Dutunga practices or the ascetic practices. And some of these will appear to be quite severe particularly in our age of uh, having everything being so nice and cushy. But I'd like to maybe go over these 13 ascetic practices just so that you have some awareness that is even to this day forest monks that practice these. And again, the spirit behind these practices is the development of contentment. Develop the fewness of wishes to be with things as they are. In these thirteen practices, five have to do with your, your where you're living, like your residence. There's five for food, two for the robes, and uh, one that's about a sitting practice. so for the robes, the two for the robes is that uh, first two Datangas, the first two ascetic practices is that first is that um, a monks will just use robes that have been discarded. So you look around, walking on your alms round, you might see discarded cloth here and there. And you gather this cloth and you sew it into squares cut it into squares and sew the squares together. That's how often these robes are made, is by these little squares that are sewed onto each other They kind of mimic a a rice paddy. We have to understand, of course, that the true meaning of these robes is the protection from gadflies and heat and to keep warm and so forth. And that a monk will also, in the second ascetic practice, just take a practice of only wearing three robes. A lower robe, an upper lower robe, and an outer cloth. And they will learn to live with just these three low robes. And the five practices on the food, the first one is that they will take on the alms round practice. They will get their begging bowl and walk into the villages and collect alms out of the bowl. The second practice is they will not skip houses knowing that perhaps the house down the street serves the good food and this house doesn't. You don't skip the bad house to get to the good house. You take a vow to go to each house. And when you eat, you eat with just one meal for that day. And you eat everything within that bowl. And the last of the five of the food is that you don't accept any extra food after you have started to eat. What's in your bowl is there, and I'll never forget. One time when I was um, attending to the monks living in a monastery, and there was a group of of people that came that ordained temporarily as monks, and I was attending to them, and One was actually a Mahayana Zen monk who wanted to ordain as a Theravadan monk for a week under Thangphu Lusato. And he got in his bowl all of his food and then someone put in his bowl a a Coca-Cola. But he was in this dilemma because he was wanting to take on this practice of having everything in one bowl. So what what was he to do? And so then he said to me, please, He asked me and I I opened up the Coca-Cola and I poured it into his rice and curry and cake and everything else. (laughs) And he took his food that way. He wanted that Coke badly. (laughs) That should have been on a Coca-Cola commercial, you know. Now, there can be a side to these um, ascetic practices that like, you know, just how macho can I be? But the spirit again behind these is of developing self-contentment and there's actually old sutra stories of, for example, a lot of these practices were done just privately and other monks didn't know that other monks were doing these practices. And there's an old story of, of two brothers that lived uh, in two separate huts and one was doing the practice of abstaining from lying down. And one night the monk, the brother had come in and found his brother's sitting up in the middle of the night and said, oh, are you doing the sitting practice? And actually that monk had been doing it for about 15 years. And in that moment, the monk lied down and said, no. So we also talk about the importance of these ascetic practices is the cultivation of humility. Speaking of the sitting practice, and again in the monastery, since I lived with the monks for over eight years, And a half years and lived very closely with them, I I knew the the practices that they were were doing. And many of them, particularly within Tunkulucero's tradition, were doing the sitting practice. And the sitting practice is simply this that you abstain from lying down. That when you do take rest, you do it in a sitting position. Tunkulucero died at the age of 90. And it is said that he actually kept the sitting practice for about 50 years. It's mean, kind of mind-boggling to consider 50 years of not sitting down. And he would, you know, They would get some pretty cush chairs. <laughs> but nevertheless, um, abstaining from lying down. And again, what was the reason for this? Some of us might think this is crazy. But when you're sitting, you require less sleep. You have more time for meditation. And having tried this practice for short periods of time, you know, I I could see there was some truth to that. The other practices relate to your residence of where you stay. And one is that you take a, a practice of you remain in the forest and that you'll stay underneath a tree. Or that you'll live in the open air without any shelter. That between two, 10 o'clock at night to 2 o'clock in the morning, you'll travel to walk to the cemetery and you'll do the mindfulness of death practice. And the last one is that you will uh, sleep at any place. They, they call this the any-dwellers practice. Now, I recognize that these practices are very foreign to our time and culture, but I'd like to maybe perhaps ask us if there's ways that in our lives that we, can we simplify our lives? Can we be content with less? When we butt up against our resistance and we don't want things to be the way that they are, can we recognize that the resistance is here? in learning how to be content with what is present i was very taken by the life of a forest monk the simplicity the humility and all the space and time to practice very intensively really fed deeply in my heart. I feel very fortunate to have had time like this. Began to just deeply resonate with the teachings of the Dharma. In some ways, maybe I just want to talk with you about how much I love the Dharma and what a refuge it is. One of these great refuges for me is these qualities of awareness and compassion, this synergy of bringing these practices together. Tom Lucero used to talk about, and it's such a benevolent teaching, if you're, for example, uh, Buddhism often talks about that many of us as human beings deal with three primary psychological roots of suffering. And that is greed, hatred, and ignorance. The Seda would say that if you are aware aware that greed is arising, then you are accumulating knowledge. If you are are unaware of greed arising, you are accumulating ignorance. And the same refrain can then go on to hatred and ignorance. There is a great emphasis in this Burmese forest tradition on awareness, that awareness brings us knowledge. That acknowledgement, awareness brings us knowledge. This offers us some hope and some workability to deal with the everyday issues that come into our lives and the wounds that we experience. Pema, children, He said, generally, we regard discomfort in any form as bad news. But for practitioners or spiritual warriors or people who have a certain hunger to know what is true, feelings like disappointment, embarrassment, irritation, resentment, anger, jealousy, and fear, instead of being bad news, are actually very clear moments that teach us where it is that we are holding back. They teach us to perk up and lean in when we feel we'd rather collapse and back away. They're like messengers that show us with terrifying clarity exactly where it is that we are stuck. I love this as a teaching. This awareness is what brings knowledge, and this knowledge may help us to become unstuck. The path of awakening is the path of turning into the skid. And as I mentioned, and many of you can hear in my voice, I'm from the East Coast, from Boston area originally, and growing up, inevitably, as a young driver, I would get caught into skids in the snow, and my impulse would always be to turn away. felt counterintuitive to turn into the skid, I was inclined to turn away. Well, I kept on turning away and I kept on skidding out until one day my dad said, Bob, if you want to get out of the skid, you've got to turn into it. And I didn't believe him. Because that sounded scary. Turning into the skid, turning into the place I want to get away from. So I kept on skidding out till eventually one day out of futility, realizing that this was not going to work, I dared to turn my wheels into the skid and lo and behold, I couldn't believe it. It was a revelation. My car began to straighten out. And I consider this uh, that experience to be a very important teaching and it was later rediscovered so many times over in the path of the Dharma. The turning into the skid, the turning into the fear, the turning into the pain... The turning into acknowledged feelings and how that that was the pathway towards greater freedom and of course this gift of, of a mindfulness practice, a compassionate awareness practice is that the gift of mindfulness that it creates our awareness to be very big. Metaphor I would say, like the sky. And of course, the sky is very accommodating to even the greatest of storms, category one, two, three, four, five, in that the sky just gives space to these storms to let them do whatever they need to do. And of course, we as solid objects, and the earth, of course, feel the, the the, the effects of these storms because of our solidity, but the sky being made of air just gives it all the room it needs, and gradually in time, it begins to dissipate. I love that metaphor because the practice of awareness is this practice of like the sky, that we're giving space to whatever's there, learning to be present. And in time, things begin to dissipate or in time we begin to see this rising and falling of the mind and the body. I realize I'm coming closer here to uh, my end and I want to maybe just offer us um, some inspiration to turn into our own skids of our lives. And how do we make our lives more simple? How can we be content with what's here? How can we begin to turn into our skids? Maybe I'll just end with a, a childhood poem, reading from the Velveteen Rabbit. It talks about being real, and if anything, perhaps this practice of the Dharma is, I believe, helping us to become real. And speaking of real, the rabbit asked one day to the horse, "What is real?" real isn't how you're made, said the skin horse. That's the thing that happens to you. When a child loves you for a long, long time, and not just plays with you, but really loves you, that's when you become real. Does it hurt, asked the rabbit? Yeah, sometimes it does, said the skin horse, for skin horse was always truthful. But when you're real, you don't mind being hurt. Does it happen all at once or bit by bit, asked the rabbit. It doesn't happen all at once, said the skin horse. To become real takes a long time. And that's why it doesn't often happen to people who break easy or who have sharp edges or who have to be carefully kept. Generally, by the time you're real, most of your hair has been loved off. And your eyes drop out. And you get loose in the joints. And very, very shabby. But these things don't matter at all. Because once you're real, you can't be ugly. Except for people who don't understand. And once you're real, you can't become unreal again. It lasts for always. (laughs) So thank you.